The following is a conversation between Kathleen Enright, President and CEO of the Council of Foundations, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. The impact that foundations have in the field of philanthropy is even greater than the cumulative value of all the grants they make. They often provide the leadership for the sector that influences what and how things get done. And one of the most important organizations in that ecosystem is the Council on Foundations. And it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their president and CEO, Kathleen Enright. Good evening, Kathleen, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Denver, thanks so much for inviting me. The council was founded back in 1943. What does the organization do? The council exists to help philanthropy be a strong and trusted partner in advancing the greater good. We are an advocate for philanthropy up on the hill so that there's a supportive ecosystem that so that philanthropy can grow and expand. Uh, we also help support the field in displaying high integrity and earning and maintaining the public's trust. We do this by strengthening the bonds between funders. We represent a diverse and varied group of grant makers, and we help them navigate the regulatory environment in the U.S. and around the world so that they can do their world, they can do their work to the best of their ability. What do you believe is the most common misunderstanding that people have about foundations? You know, sometimes folks think uh, that foundations are only uh, the biggest of the big, like the Bill and Melinda Gates foundations. But the foundations come in all shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. and many of them are created in, in a variety of ways. Uh, like health conversion foundations, yeah. those come out of the sale of a hospital or health system. Um, some are very small. Uh, and also philanthropy does not have to be institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Philanthropy happens by individuals every day. Denver, I bet you're a philanthropist. I bet you <laughs> give money uh, to causes that you care about. Mm-hmm. I give causes. I give money to causes that I care about. So it happens um, in communities across the country and around the world. And it's part of what uh, makes America unique That's and great. Right. Yeah. And it's not only money, it's time as well. That's you know, true. Yeah, There's a yeah. lot of Philanthropy is getting a broader and broader, I think, definition in, in the public's mind. Are you a membership organization? We are. We're a membership organization. How many members? Uh, we have about 720 at the moment. Okay. And counting. <laughs> yes. I was going to say I, I didn't check today. <laughs> yeah. Well, a few of the issues that the Council on Foundations are, is engaged, uh, let's talk about a, mm-hmm. a couple of them. One would be economic inclusion. That's mm-hmm. becoming increasingly important. We sometimes think that it happened right downstairs where Zuccotti Park is because that's where Occupy Wall Street was. Mm-hmm. And although sometimes people looked at that as being kind of an ant, eh, it really did set off this whole thing about economic inclusion. Um, what are you doing in that regard to help engage the foundations and your members to try to be a more active partner in that? You know, there's a lot of different ways that our members are working on that. Um, some of them are doing more traditional work related to access to jobs, mm-hmm. um, sustainable wages, et cetera. And so we are helping them learn from one another. Um, but, you know, at the very heart of it, we we have to take into consideration the fact that philanthropy itself uh, comes out of the fact that there is economic inequality. You know, philanthropy is a product of economic inequality. So we're trying to help explore the fact that 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 exists Mm -hmm. and that we need to take a very deep look um, at what that means and whether and if philanthropy needs to take a broader approach at addressing it. Um, 
some of our members are uh, more interested in opportunity zones at the moment. Um, and so the Rockefeller Foundation is one of those. Uh, they've been very seriously trying to make sure that opportunity zones are community driven and um, that they are uh, really benefiting those that they are intended to serve. Uh, rather than tax seen as write-off. tax write-offs <laughs> yes. for those who who um, make the investments there. And so that's one thing, that's one way in which um, uh, some of our members are, are, are taking advantage of a, of a federal government program um, that's trying to decrease the, the economic inequality. Mm-hmm. You know, Kathleen, that as a society, we pretty much have stopped talking with people who disagree with us. Rather, we're talking at them. And now people are looking to philanthropy to say, is there something that we can do to help build bridges? Speak a little bit about that. Yes, I think that's something that our members are thinking very, very carefully about. And I am um, personally committed to finding ways for the council to serve a role there. Mm-hmm. One of the unique values that I keep hearing that the, that the council can provide, given that we are seen as such a big tent, and we are nonpartisan, and we convene foundations who might be seen as supporting causes that might be more right-leaning and more left-leaning, mm-hmm. um, that we can possibly help our members have conversations across difference um, that can lead to more productive solutions. So um, we have been dipping our toes in that water and and um, supporting some of those conversations. We released a report alongside the Kettering Foundation um, uh, earlier this year at our conference that um, that shares um, uh, some uh, early uh, insights mm-hmm. along those lines. Um, but our members are modeling some of the way forward. You know, the the Koch Brothers Foundation, they're not a member at this moment, but they have been working with um, on uh, criminal justice reform with what others might uh, might characterize as more left-leaning foundations who are working on criminal justice They've reform. been champions of that, really, for a exactly. long time now. And so I think that there is a, um, a sense that that some of these deeply entrenched societal societal problems are not going to move forward unless um, we look at them um, from the perspective um, of of where might there be common ground? Mm-hmm. Where might um, many of us agree on what some of the solutions are? And I think sometimes what we do is we spend too much time analyzing their motivations. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, as you just said, if you can find that common ground and get stuff done to improve a condition, uh, that's what really counts. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have your toes in a lot of pools of water. One of those would be the sustainable development goals. Uh, obviously, philanthropy has to play a role in helping meet those 17 goals put forth by the UN. Mm-hmm. How have you been working in that regard with your members there? You know, several of my colleagues were um, uh, just up at uh, the UN General Assembly and meeting with many of our members uh, uh, to advance that work there. 
the Hilton Foundation has been a real leader in, in advancing the sustainable mm-hmm. development goals over many years. And one of the ways that we're trying to advance that work is uh, is to help people see that this is not just a, an international issue, it's a domestic issue, that you can incorporate the sustainable development goals into your citywide strategy. Um, and community foundations are often um, taking some leadership there and thinking through how do the sustainable development goals apply to our local area and how can we play a role in incorporating them into our thinking and into our community plan? Mm-hmm. We have had a number of CEOs from foundations on the show, such as uh, F.B. Heron, mm-hmm. uh, the Ford Foundation, the Cerdna Foundation, and those, among others, are really in the forefront of impact investing and program-related mm-hmm. investing. How much is that spreading across the foundation world? You know, in, in the course of my time in philanthropy, um, uh, impact investing, using the 95% of the assets yeah. in addition to the 5% or uh, therein, you know, around that amount of grant making uh, has really transformed the way that uh, grant makers are thinking about their work. Heron has been a huge leader on that front under Clara Miller's leadership and others. I think that it is expanding greatly. Mm-hmm. And my sense, though, is that um, for many grant makers um, uh, who are just getting started, thinking first about getting brilliant on the basics of doing the grant making <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Yes. Um, before <laughs> you um, get into some of the exotic off, ways of uh, exactly. yeah, yeah, get the before meat and potatoes down first. Veer off into the worlds of um, you know uh, of those kinds of investments. Um, you know, it makes sense to just ensure that you're doing right by your grantees, that you're setting up grants in the way that makes the most sense for them, that you're streamlining reporting requirements, that you're opting for general operating support, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, And an interesting byproduct of that, and I remember Clara spoke about that, is that within her own organization, when they did that 100% commitment Mm -hmm. of of all their assets to doing social good, she said it broke down the silos in the organization, Mm -hmm. that the investment people and the program people would meet at the Christmas party, Mm -hmm. and now they were working together and really helping each other. So there's a lot of benefits that come from that, both externally and internally. Yeah, certainly, and and I'm not at all dissu- you know trying to dissuade any foundation from um, going down that path. Uh, I just think there's a a, le- a, a time in organizational life right. cycle yeah. when it makes sense. I, I can't agree with you more. Um, philanthropy has become more global, both in terms of cross border grant making and really applying a global perspective to what we're doing mm-hmm. here at home. What are you able to do there to assist? You know, the council's role has been for several years to support uh, U.S.-based grantmakers as they do work abroad. Mm -hmm. And since I took this job seven months ago, I've heard from many of our our members and and others that they've really appreciated um, the work that we've done, particularly post 9-11, to help them um, respond to the increasing regulations and requirements of doing grant making overseas. So uh, we have um, are committed to continue to support grant makers in those lights. And additionally, we are hoping to figure out the ways that we can learn from uh, those um, emerging uh, civil societies overseas and the f- and the foundations that are growing up in in many different countries. I'm sure that there's plenty that philanthropy in the U.S can learn um, from the philanthropic organizations in in many other countries. Share with us your observations and insights around risk. 
Because huh. people sometimes look at foundations as being the passing lane yeah. of society. They can they can roll the dice a little bit more. On the other hand, you hear people say they can be some of the most conservative organizations. And I don't mean that in the political sense. Um, what do you see? You know, I, I the bottom line for me on risk is that the way that people define risk related to philanthropy is often wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who bear the brunt of the risk related to foundations are those who are either well-served or ill-served by the investments that foundations decide to make or or not to make. Um, so, you know, in the highly publicized um, investment by, uh, by Mark Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, in the New York public schools, um, it was not Mark Zuckerberg who bore that risk. Right. Um, it was those kids who were not well served by the way that that investment went down. So, um, you know, there's foundations think about, you know, reputational risk and financial risk and are they going to get return on their investment and all of those sorts of things. But it is the the people who are marginalized, it is the people who are underserved, it is the people who are not getting the value out of the public resource that has been tax advantaged because, um, you know, the person has gotten a charitable um, tax deduction yeah. based on giving it. Um, it is those people who who bear the brunt of us making um less than well thought through investments. So that's how I think about risk in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, if if it gets flipped on its head, sometimes, you know, um, uh, the risk is uh, is stronger to not do something than it is, um, you know, if, if we go ahead and do it. I, I hear you. Uh, some big news in your world recently were those five large foundations, MacArthur, Hewlett, Ford, who basically are going to try a set of practices and commit more of their money to overhead, to administration, to, mu- uh, to, to programs that will make the nonprofit organization, the grantees, more effective at what they're doing. And that starvation cycle. Do you think this is going to take off or, or not? Oh, Denver. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is I, um, a, a generation-old conversation the that overhead I'm hoping um, <laughs> will finally find some momentum. Uh, before I came to the Council on Foundations, I ran a group called Grantmakers for Effective Organizations that has been a champion of both full-cost funding mm-hmm. and general operating support for decades. Um, I'm very glad that these foundations have decided to go public and um, to fund in this way. Uh, But the fact that foundations don't do it already um, feels unconscionable. Uh, That foundations pick and choose which costs they think are appropriate and inappropriate um, feels paternalistic and and isn't something that they would do that these business people who made their money uh, in any enterprise would do as they were building their business. So why would they do it as they're trying to fund work that is uh, by orders of magnitude more difficult than the work that they did to make their money? Yeah, I don't think any CEO in a business has gone into the boardroom and people said, how much did you spend on training this month? Yeah, It's just not the issues. They, They want the bottom line. They want the end product of the impact and not how you got to the impact, it's, as long as you did it in the you know ethical and a conscientious fashion. It's exactly right. 
Over this past summer, you sent a letter um, asking readers to help you renew the council's vision and the value to the field. What are some of the things you heard, some of the things you're considering, maybe even some of the things you're acting upon? Oh, thanks for asking, Denver. And that's um, why I'm in New York is because I was doing one more listening session with mm-hmm. New York grant makers. And we are hearing terrific themes. Um, you know, one theme, uh, very clearly folks have told us that we need to continue to be a policy voice in Washington, D.C. on behalf of the sector. And that uh, we will clearly do. Uh, What's at the top of that agenda at this moment? Oh, so um, tax reform really hurt charitable giving. The numbers are clear now that when um, tax reform doubled the standard deduction, it reduced the number of itemizers, and therefore uh, it has reduced charitable giving. So we want to help um, increase the incentives for for charitable giving Mm -hmm. again, and not just for those who are in the highest income groups. So... Um, we're pushing hard uh, to uh, create those incentives, either through a universal t- uh, charitable deduction right. or charitable credit. Mm-hmm. So that is a top policy objective for us. Um, but on the vi- back to the vision, um, in addition to the being a policy voice on the Hill, folks are asking us to be a leadership voice for the sector. So when there are misconceptions about what philanthropy is and the good that it does in society, that we can provide that leadership voice and bust through some of those, bust through some of those misconceptions. Do you feel that the uh, council is ready to assume that role, or do you have to do some things internally to say we got to step up and this is a big responsibility? I think the uh, column B. <laughs> we are getting there. Well, that's um, self awareness. That's yes, always good. <laughs> there's um, there's definitely some internal work that we need to do, um, but reputationally, the council is ready. Our members are asking it of us, so um, so I think the field wants us to to do it, and we are building the internal strength to be able to get there. Um, but it, that's not the only thing that the, our members want us to do. Uh, they are also asking us to um, help decrease the polarization and to bridge those divides mm-hmm. and to lead on some of those conversations. They're also asking us to help professionalize the field by providing some of those learning opportunities for their leaders and their emerging leaders. So um, that's something else that we're looking to do. And also to support collaboration. So yeah. many of the themes that you've already brought up with me here are the themes that our members are asking for us to lean into. And I would imagine also they probably had some say in wanting a little bit of a new membership model, which you have implemented. Give us a highlight of that. Yes, um, that was a clarion call from the (laughs) members. Um, Before I was hired uh, as CEO, the board did a lot of listening, and um, a key complaint was that the previous membership model didn't feel fair. Mm. And so um, right when I came on board, we convened a member committee and did a lot of listening and have structured a new membership model built on um, uh, transparency and fairness and inclusion and so we've rolled it out, and that's why I don't know our membership numbers um, exactly, because it's going up, mm-hmm. uh, because new people are joining on a daily basis, uh, which is very, very good news. Um, we built the model to um, honor the different kinds of uh, philanthropic organizations that exist. These are not organizations that are that have um, everything in common, family foundations and private foundations and community foundations and corporate grant makers are very distinct and unique in how they're set up and how, where their money comes from. And, and therefore, uh, they needed different dues models. And um, so we structured it that way this yeah. time. 
You came into this current role less than a year ago after 17 years at, uh, as CEO of Grant Makers for Effective uh, Organizations. How do you balance uh, showing the appropriate respect and reverence for a 75-year-plus institution at the same time trying to give it a, a little bit of a charge mm -hmm. and dust it off and give it a facelift at the same time? That's always a very, very tricky proposition for yeah. a new CEO. How do you think about it? Well, I mean, the great news is that this is what the board was asking for and this is what the field was asking for. So this is not... Um, my agenda mm -hmm. that I'm coming in with. This is um, what the stakeholders are requesting of me. Uh, so there is a lot of strength to build from with the council. Um, people feel a very close connection. You know, I, I hear people say, I'm glad to come home to the council uh, when they rejoin. Mm -hmm. People have told me that some of their most meaningful professional development experiences of their career were had at the council. So um, I, it, it makes me proud to be in this role and to try to uh, create that next generation of leaders who are able to say that. Um, to whatever future CEO <laughs> replaces me uh, 20 years from now. 20 years. Well, mm -hmm. I was looking for the timeline. How long you plan to uh, stay in this role? I got yeah. the answer. Three more than the last one, I guess. <laughs> Let me close with this, Kathleen. Boy, foundations, like any other institution, comes in for their fair share of criticism. What part of that criticism you think is really justified and we need to step up and do a better job, and what part of it you think might be a little misguided and unfair? Yes, absolutely. I, I think that um, the critics, uh, we should listen to them very carefully because mm -hmm. there is certainly truth in their criticism. Um, the insularity of philanthropy, um, the fact that we have not listened as carefully and well to those that we serve and integrated their voices in our decision-making is uh, valid. It's something that we need to think very carefully about and do better at. In fact, there's an effort in uh, philanthropy uh, called the Fund for Shared Insight. Yes. That is directly They have on been on the show. Issue. They have. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Melinda yeah. Twan. Or, Melinda um, Twan was on the show, right. Terrific. Um, so they are working very hard to help uh, move that work forward, as does GEO and the, and the Center for Effective Philanthropy. So many in our sector are trying to build those feedback loops and build the opportunity for engagement and inclusion of those that we are trying to serve. So that is a um, justifiable um, uh, charge, and we sure. need to work harder. Beneficiary feedback. Who would have ever thought? <laughs> it seems straightforward, um, but some folks uh, uh, don't take it as seriously as they should. They don't um, they don't integrate it as deeply. They do it in a service-level way, all of those kinds yes. of things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the things that are, are possibly less valid are um, a painting philanthropy with um, a very, uh, with a broad brush, um, presuming that uh, we are monolithic, mm -hmm. um, that we are the privilege trying to protect our own privilege. Um, I think one thing that Anand Giridhanas um, uh, uh, is known to um, to believe winners is, take all. The yes, author. The, the author of Winners Take All is that um, you know that that many philanthropists are doing their philanthropy um, kind of as cover, you yeah, know, yeah. for their for the ills that they're doing. Sort in of their, the greenwashing type yes. of yeah, yeah. And um, these are not the philanthropists that I have met and know over my. 
almost 18-year career in philanthropy. So he is in he is bumping up against a very different caliber and set of people than the hundreds, if not thousands, of philanthropists that I have had the privilege of engaging with over my career. Well, I think there are a lot of authors out there sometimes who think they're mind readers, <laughs> and they know the motivation inside of all these people, and they're going to tell you what it is, even that, if the person doesn't know what it is. That might be true, or <laughs> that they are inferring um, their inferences may not be correct. Well, Kathleen Enright, the president and CEO of the Council on Foundations, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. What is your website and what information do you have there you think visitors might find of interest? Oh, yes. It's um, cof.org. And you can find amazing information about uh, the legal legal guidance related to philanthropy, a lot of uh, information about uh, how to structure uh, foundations, anything about 101 uh, guidance around philanthropy and foundations, go there. And a lot of links to our peers and partners. Uh, there are incredible philanthropic serving organizations beyond the Council on Foundations um, that might also be terrific uh, references for you. Well, thanks, Kathleen. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Denver. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at BizOfGive on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.